Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent, silent prayer to make sure that we are spiritually prepared, ready to uh, study the word in right relationship with uh, God, the Holy Spirit, fellowship, and uh, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here. We're thankful for this church, for the congregation, for the witness that uh, this congregation has to the importance of your word and to the truth that is there. Father, we pray that as we continue to study your word that we might be uh, strengthened and encouraged by the examples of these uh, Old Testament faith heroes, that we might learn from them how we can stand fast in the times of testing and how we can make decisions that bring glory and honor to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you can go ahead, if you wish, to turn to the Old Testament, to Judges, chapter 10. I'll go back over a little introduction to our context in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, in Hebrews 11, the writer is wrapping up his list of examples from the Old Testament. And in verse 32, he gives six examples. I pointed out last time there are three pairs, and in each pair, the person who comes later chronologically is put before uh, the other person. And it, the only thing that seems to be of any uh, 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 pattern to this is perhaps that the first person, that would be Gideon, Samson, and David, are all more more well-known. However, that... Uh, first list with Gideon uh, preceding Barak is also patterned after a verse in First uh, Samuel in one of uh, Samuel's uh, speeches. So the writer says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. So in that last example, he uh, includes the lives of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Haggai, all of the uh, Old Testament prophets. And he uses them in terms of the illustration in the next verse that it is through faith they did the following. They subdued kingdoms. They, had, they conquered them, uh, worked righteousness, that is, especially David established a righteous rule, a rule of justice, obtained promises, they realized certain promises of God within their own lifespans, stopped the mouths of lions. We think of both Samson as well as Daniel uh, in the lion's den. And um, this characterized these particular, uh, these particular men. Then in um, 
verse 34, we read, they quench the violence of fire. We think of the uh, three uh, young Hebrew men who were Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're uh, being tossed in the fiery furnace. Escape from the edge of the sword, out of weakness, remain strong. It reminds us of what Paul says there in Second Corinthians chapter 11, that in in our weakness, God is made, uh, we're made strong. Uh, God's strength comes through in our weakness, so we are humbled under the mighty hand of God. Uh, we, they became valiant in battle and turned to flight the armies of the aliens, that is, those who came from outside uh, the land of Israel. Now, last week, we looked at just that first pair, which, in, which was uh, Gideon and Barak, and we went through the uh, battles of Deborah and Barak as they threw off the Canaanites, specifically uh, Jabin, the uh, king of Hatzor, and Sisera, who is the commanding officer. And because Barak would not really trust God without uh, Deborah going along, he did not receive the full honor of the victory. And it went to a young woman, Jael, who invited uh, Sisera into the tent to rest, and he went to sleep and and she she just nailed him. First example of anybody getting nailed in in history. And then uh, the next example of Gideon. And Gideon had a lot of failures, but he trusted God at a key point. And so what we learn from these men is that they weren't exactly uh, men who just did everything right, always trusted God. In fact, most of the time they didn't, especially those in the book of Judges. Judges is a picture the book of Judges describes what happens to a culture when it succumbs to postmodernism. And that is what we are watching in our culture today. We see it more and more. And the history of Christianity, just like the history of Israel in the Old Testament, is the history of the people of God being impacted and overwhelmed by the worldview of the culture around them while they're saying throughout the whole time that they are still uh, walking with God. So they were warned by Timothy that in the latter days, difficult times will come. And part of that is that people will uh, uh, deny the power of godliness while claiming to, uh, claiming to have it. And so we, we all fall pray to different times and in different ways, succumbing to various forms of rationalization, various forms of compartmentalization, where we separate out certain areas of our thinking, certain areas of application in our lives, and where, whereas in certain ways we seem to be very mature, growing Christians, but in other ways we're just as pagan as the day we were saved. And this still still goes on today, and in our culture it gets worse and worse and worse, and we see more and more of these same trends going on among among Christians in, in our world today because most Christians, most of us, uh, think in a lot of ways, ways that we're not always ready to admit, we, we think no differently from the pagans around us because we grew up and were influenced by the same uh, forces, the same ideas, the same culture that the pagan down the street uh, is influenced by, by. It's just that because of the Word of God, we've reversed it to a certain degree. But what we see in the book of Judges is a negative trajectory from the first judge, Othniel, of whom nothing 
negative is said to the last judge, uh, Samson, of whom almost nothing positive is said, we see how a culture that is uh, victoriously appropriating the promise of God to conquer the, the Canaanites in the first chapter of Judges ends up at the very end of the book where they're unable to trust God to throw off the uh, oppression of the Philistines. In fact, as we'll see tonight in our study of Samson, Samson uh, never calls forth an army. Samson never calls for the people to uh, come together and resist or overthrow the Philistines. All Samson is concerned about is himself. He is the prototype of the baby boomers of the last uh, 40 or 50 years. He, it's all about him. You could, you could put a big me button right on Samson's chest. Me, me, me. He is nothing but self-absorbed. And this goes through his entire life. He never follows through in, really in obedience to God until right at the very end. And then there's a few moments of, uh, uh, of obedience and a few moments of trust in God. And that lands him in Hebrews chapter 11, which gives us a lot of hope because there are a lot of us who who realize that we probably messed up as much as Samson has, and yet there are times when we have trusted trusted the Lord, so we see God's grace and understanding the problems that we have in, in just the whole spiritual conflict. So we go back to to Judges, and we see that there is a this this negative uh, trajectory that is taking place spiritually in the culture as it moves from being an obedient. Uh, nation and obedient culture to being one that is that is uh, no different from the culture around them. The what they are doing by the time you get into the last three or four chapters of Judges in those final little epilogues is just uh, unbelievably abhorrent, and they are out um, they they are out paganizing the Canaanites. They, their behavior is worse than that of the Canaanite culture around them. And so they end the period with just in a hopeless state, and that sets them up for really the hope that comes in 1 Samuel, because the hope is the is in is in David. David as the uh, prototype of the Messiah is the one who brings that ultimate victory over the Philistines, as indicated by his victory over Goliath. And he's the one who brings real deliverance to the nation after, after years of compromise and years of, of relativism. The key verse in uh, Judges is in Judges chapter uh, 21, verse uh, 25, that there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that is, should be on the tombstone of the current generations in the United States because that's what everybody's doing, what's right in their own eyes. They have lost a sense of objectivity and lost a sense of external values, um, and, and that dominates, dominates our, our uh, postmodern culture in many different ways. So tonight what we're going to do is look at the next two examples that the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews refers to, and these are... Jephthah and Samson. We'll take them in chronological order rather than in the order that the writer of Hebrews takes them so that we can, we can follow them. Last time we looked at the, the major figures of Barak and then Gideon. Then there are a couple of minor judges that show up who have 
minor roles in bringing uh, <clears throat> some deliverance, some relief to Israel from their foreign oppressors. Uh, Tola uh, and Jair mentioned the first part of Judges chapter 10. And then we come to the spiritual evaluation of the nation. And we see that again and again and again, they just commit this same cycle of sin. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. They chase after the false gods and goddesses of the pagan culture around them, adopt their value system. Now, one thing that really hit me this time, and I don't think I quite looked at it the same way when I taught this before, but when you read this verse in uh, Judges 10.6, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now, the Baals and the Asherah represents the male and the female deity in the fertility cult, which, as I pointed out before when we've studied this, represents the same kind of thinking that we have in our culture today. It is basically a, a materialistic, prosperity-driven philosophy. And so it's not just that they are going down in some sort of compartmentalized way and having uh, being engaged in certain rituals with these gods and goddesses, and then they go home and go about everyday life. But once they begin to worship one of these gods or goddesses or into these, uh, into these idolatrous uh, prosperity religions of that day, they're buying into the entire way of life that's represented by those religious, uh, by the religious ideals of those of those gods and goddesses. They are buying into the ethical system. They're buying, first of all, into... Always remember that in in a worldview, which is nothing more than a philosophy of life, you have the same basic elements you have in the study of philosophy. There's always an ultimate understanding or an understanding of ultimate reality, let's say. And that's called metaphysics, which means that which is beyond the physical. So that refers to usually gods or goddesses or ultimate forces that control uh, the universe and that give birth to the universe. So they, the metaphysic always relates to some sort of origin um, myth or legend. And that's why origin is so important, because if, you, if I tell you where a person thinks they came from, I can pretty much tell you what their value system is in life, and how they were going to respond under certain kinds of pressure, and where, they're, where they think they're headed, because all of that flows out of your view of origins. That's why we constantly see this, this battle in Western civilizations since the middle 19th century over Darwinism. It, it's either evolution or creation. You cannot blend them. Now, this was a problem with Christians, Bible-believing Christians in the 19th century who thought that somehow you could blend them. They had such a uh, hope and faith in modern science that they, they had lost their understanding of knowledge, and that's your second element in any sort of worldview. First, there's your view of, of metaphysics, your view of ultimate reality, and then knowledge. How do you know things? How do you know what's true? How do you know what's false? And there we run into what we talked about before in terms of your uh, four basic ways of knowing truth. And the first three ways all have something to do with glorifying 
some aspect of creation and some aspect of human makeup. And those three are rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism. And they all put their ultimate faith in the ability of the human mind to properly perceive, understand, and interpret reality so that they can go from the individual examples, uh, the individual instances, the individual details of what they observe, what they think, and then properly and correctly extrapolate from a, a, a few examples to universal principles and universal explanations. So the faith is in the human ability to somehow be able to explain all of reality without aid from some sort of outside source of information. Now, the fourth way that we come to know truth is if somebody who is omniscient, somebody who is a witness, somebody who was there, tells us, what we can't learn from reason alone or from experience alone, empiricism, or from uh, just our own internal intuitive ability to somehow perceive reality on the basis of our own gut instinct, as, as it were. And all those three things have, have that one thing in common, that their faith is in human ability. Now, when you get into the ancient world, what they're doing is they're starting with something else in creation, uh, some aspect of nature, and then they magnify that and make that God. So we're always doing what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, is we're always worshiping the creature or the creation rather than the creator. And that's the thrust of the sin nature. That's the default position of everybody's uh, sin nature is to worship the the creature rather than the, than the creator. So what we have here when we look at verse 6, and we see that once again they're serving the Baals and the Ashtoreths, that's the plural for those two deities, of the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, that's uh, Baal, the area of Sidon, Tyre and Sidon and Phoenicia, the gods of Moab, uh, the gods of the people of Ammon, uh, and uh, <clears throat> the god of Moab was Chemosh, and his counterpart, or the uh, name the Ammonites had, was Milcom. Now, you can write that down. That's important for understanding what happens with Jephthah, because he, it, he, 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 really, he really tweaks the Ammonites, because he just completely ignores uh, their god and some of the things that they had done in his little uh, uh, interchange with them. But so you have the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook, that means they abandoned the Lord and did not serve him. So, so the, the bottom line is, is life. Bottom line is what you, what you do with your life. The decisions you make. Are you ser- serving God? Or are you serving mammon, as Jesus said? Are you serving material things? And you can't serve both at the same time. You have to make a choice. One or the other. You're either going to be driven by some sort of creation-driven worship system. By that I mean you're worshiping some aspect of the creation as the ultimate reality, which that's what materialism is. Materialism ultimately isn't just the worship of, of, of things or the accumulation of things. 
Materialism is a philosophy that believes that the ultimate reality is matter, is made of matter and is made of material things. It's not uh, sp- spiritual. Scripture says God is spirit. Uh, that So the ultimate reality, biblically speaking, is God. It is that which is of spirit. It is not physical or material, measurable, discernible. And that has huge implications in a lot of different areas so that today most modern psychology is materialism, uh, is materialistic or driven by a materialistic philosophy so that there's no such thing as an immaterial soul. And that means that all human behavior then is explained in terms of how the, the uh, chemicals of the brain are proportioned, how the synapse fire, all of these other things, and they study all of the details and mechanics of, of, of the brain because it is the brain that determines everything. It's all physiological. All behavior is determined uh, physiologically. But Scripture says, no, there's something that's immaterial, that is a soul that's created in the image and likeness of God, and at the core of the soul, the determinative issue is always volition. Now, those are two radically opposed ways of looking at reality. And the materialistic view grows out of an ultimate materialistic uh, metaphysic, that, that there's no God or uh, immaterial being out there. There's just matter. In the beginning, there was the Big Bang. And it's all just dense matter that's there at the beginning, and then it... Uh, somehow explodes and begins to expand, and everything else just uh, accidentally develops from that. So you start with matter, all you ever have is matter. And that pretty much reduces human beings to being nothing more than another material cog in the machine. They have no more value than a rock. They have no more value than, uh, you know, than the slime that forms on top of a pond. They're just another accidental thing that's included within the material universe. So that's materialism. And that is a basic, basic component of the uh, modern uh, and postmodern philosophy of life. And you have the same thing in these ancient cosmogonies. We studied some of these before that in the way that they uh, explained creation, there's always the existence of some sort of of God or goddess, and then there's a battle, and one of them is slain, and out of the blood and out of the body of that slain God, the other gods form uh, creation. So again, there's that materialistic, uh, materialistic worldview, and a materialistic worldview is going to also explain how you know things, and then also your ethics or your values, and all those things are connected, and the bottom line is what it produces in the way people live. And when you look at the descriptions of the Canaanite culture and all of the horrible things that they did, you look at the uh, worship systems of the Ammonites and the Moabites, the worship of Chemosh and Milcom also produced child sacrifice where people would make uh, basically bargains with their God that, uh, if, they got, if, if they would sacrifice a child in order to have prosperity, in order for God to make them uh, wealthy or happy. And you can certainly see certain parallels of that kind of thinking 
in today's world, as, as people sacrifice family, they sacrifice their children in both uh, uh, figurative ways as well as literal ways, in some cases with abortion, in order to just have a simpler life so that they can have greater success and uh, uh, greater um, a great number of, of uh, things and um, and wealth and success and all the things that go with it. So when we read a verse like this, we have to read this in terms of the fact that the Israelites were completely rejecting everything that God had revealed to them from the creation to how to know God by faith and how to live in terms of the ethics and value systems as given in the Mosaic Law. So they've just thrown all of it out, and it radically changes their culture so that they don't look any different from the, from the pagans around them. And the result of this is God's justice in time, and we have the use of the same kind of word that we find again and again, the wrath of the Lord, the anger of the Lord, literally in the Hebrew. It's the idea of his nose burned, so it's a figure of speech. Uh, related to what happens when a person gets angry, and just to indicate the intensity of the uh, condemnation that comes from the Supreme Court of Heaven. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Now here I have a map that will help us orient a little bit just down here, you can just barely see it on the lower left end of the map. This uh, light green area here is the edge of the Philistine territory. And down here you have one of the cities of the Philistines, Ashdod. We'll pay more attention to that uh, a little later on. And it is down in this area that would be just off the edge of the map is where Samson operates. And all of his uh, activities were down in that area dealing with the, with the Philistines. And then up here on the um, east side of the Jordan, in this area, which was known as Gilead, uh, between, uh, I believe it's between this river and this river, is where you have, or maybe, yeah, it's, is where you have the uh, uh, disputed territory between uh, the, the Gileadites, the Israelites that are living on the east side of the trans, or the Transjordan, and the Am- Ammonites who are coming in from the, from the east and wanting to take over this territory, uh, from Israel. And so one of the, uh, Gileadites by the name of Jephthah is, uh, elevated to a position of leadership and becomes the next, uh, the next major judge. And what we see here in, in chapter 10 is the setup for why uh, Jephthah needs to be brought in. So in verse uh, 8, we're told, from that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. So here we see once again that Transjordan area, everything in Israel is always from the perspective of Jerusalem, and the Transjordan is across the Jordan, so that would be on the east side of the Jordan in the area over there that's shaded in blue that was designated for the tribe of Gad. Moreover, we're told in verse 9, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, 
Uh, that would be, so here we have Ephraim in the yellow, Benjamin's the purple here, and Judah's the area to the south. And so they're attacking, they're crossing over the Jordan here and attacking the central highlands in, um, in Israel. So Israel is severely distressed. Now what happens? Now this is what happens with most of us after about 18 years of being under divine discipline. Hopefully you won't wait that long. Maybe you'll wait 18 minutes or 18 days, but not 18 years. But unfortunately there are a lot of believers who are just as dense as the ancient Israelites. And we can all be that way in different areas. And so... Uh, all of a sudden, they finally, after 18 years, they cry out to the Lord. But there's a sense here in which the Lord is not really giving any real credence to what they're doing. They're just sort of giving lip service to confession, something we've all done at times. And they're, they're just uh, going through the motions, saying the right things, hoping that somehow God will lighten up on the punishment. And so in verse 10 we read, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both abandoned you, abandoned our God, and served the Baals. And notice God's response. Now that's a legitimate confession, but a lot of us have noticed at times that we confess our sins, and 30 seconds later we're sinning again. It's not that the initial confession wasn't valid. It's just that because we aren't dealing honestly and seriously with uh, what's going on and what's causing the sin in our life and our rebellion against God, we're, we're out of fellowship almost immediately because the basic orientation of our, of our soul is still towards the sin nature. So the Lord says to the children of Israel, verse 11, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? back during the time of the Exodus, from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines. How many times have I got to deliver you people before you get the message? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. I've done it again and again and again. Yet you have forsaken me, verse 13. The word there for forsaken is the idea of you've abandoned me, you've rejected me, you've ignored me, and you've served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Now, how would you like it if God stopped like that? Okay, you've confessed that sin 3,000 times now. I'm not forgiving it the 3,000 and first time. Just, just forget it. But God's making a point here. It's not that he's not going to forgive them. He wants to get their attention. You can't just go through the motions and say you are confessing your sin of idolatry and not take time to reflect upon how that has permeated every thought in your soul, you have to start dealing with the basic rebellion in your soul and your orientation to personal autonomy, because if you don't address that, then you just keep bouncing in and out of fellowship all the time, which is what essentially what the Israelites were doing during this period of history. So he says to them, well, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time, in your time of dis- distress. He is saying this in order to get their attention and get them to focus on the real underlying spiritual rebellion in their soul, that they can't solve that just by 
getting back in fellowship for an instant or two. They have to start dealing with the underlying realities. What I would say if we were talking about a church-age view of the spiritual life is getting in fellowship only puts you in a position of potential spiritual growth. The commands in Scripture are, are to walk by means of the Spirit, to abide in Christ, which means to stay in fellowship. Both of those ideas are to, to stay there. Uh, confession, 1 John 1, 9, is just so we can recover from disobedience, not to give us the opportunity to be disobedient again and to just keep being disobedient, but to put ourselves back in a position where we'll try to stay in fellowship, to walk by means of the Spirit, abide in Christ, uh, walk in truth, uh, these things. And if you don't deal with the underlying orientation that you're still committed to the uh, human viewpoint intellectual gods and goddesses in your soul, then you, what happens is you end up running through your spiritual life constantly bouncing in and out of fellowship and wondering why you never get anywhere in terms of spiritual growth. And so God's just, he, he, he's rebuking them for a shallow, superficial confession that isn't going to the next stage and focusing on what's really causing uh, the problem, and it gets their attention. And in verse 15, they respond and they say, "The Lord, we have sinned." So that's the essence of confession—to admit the sin. And they and they say, "Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day." And then what did they do in verse 16? So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. See, confession, First John 1 9, gets you back in fellowship. That's all you need to do to get in fellowship. But to stay in fellowship, there has to be an ongoing application of Scripture, of doctrine, doing what the Word of God says to do, following the mandates and the prohibitions of Scripture. Because if you think that all you have to do is confess your sin, somehow mystically, magically, wonderfully, you're going to start growing again. The, 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 that only happens as you stay in fellowship, and that only occurs by obeying the Lord. Because if you disobey, you're just back out of fellowship again. So they they confess their sin, and then they're obedient, which means they put away the foreign gods, and they serve the Lord. They are going to put into practice what they're claiming to believe. And so then it says, and literally in the Hebrew, New King James trans- translates it correctly. It's an idiom for, uh, for the Lord could no longer endure the misery of Israel. It's expressing his uh, recognition that they have, uh, turn back to him and indicating that now he is going to provide and deliver, but it doesn't go that far. It doesn't say that overtly, but that's we learn that as we go into the next chapter. So then we're told that there's a foreign policy problem in Israel, just like today. Uh, this has gone on down through the ages that the enemies of Israel have gathered on their border, and the people of Ammon have gathered together and encamped in Gilead. Now here I have a slightly different map for you. This is a larger map than I'm going to zero in on it. Uh, this is uh, <clears throat> from a new set of maps that have come out in the new Logos program that are really, really well, well done. And once we get, uh, I get to where I can use it a little better, uh, it's got some really neat things you can do with it because all of the, uh, for example, if I typed in uh, uh, a city like Jerusalem, it also gives you the 
current satellite um, uh, reference points, latitude and longitude, and you can click on that and go to, go to Google Satellite and zero right in on the same place as it looks today. So it's 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 a lot of lot of uh, interesting things we can do with it once once I get a little more adept at using it. But this is a large overview. This little blue tip of the is the Sea of Galilee up here in the north. Then the blue line going from north to south uh, is the uh, Jordan River, and then down here is the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is, I think, right over uh, right here. That little black dot there is Jerusalem. We have the tribal area of Judah down here to the south, Benjamin here, Ephraim up here to the north, and some of Manasseh up here. So this is on the uh, west side of the Jordan. And over here we have the territory of Gad. In this area, all this mountainous area in here is the area, the territory of Gilead. Now the green over here represents the undefined territory of Ammon. They're just a, at this stage, they are, uh, they don't have set borders. They're, uh, they're not settled into a specific territory. Remember Moab and Ammon, the individuals were the, uh, offspring of the uh, drunken, incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And so this represents the uh, land where the Ammonites are, are dwelling. And the lines that are there, we see a little closer here, bring us into a little more perspective, are going to indicate the lines of movement uh, during, the, during the battle. So uh, this shows the kind of the capital of Ammon, which is modern... Uh, 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 Ammon, and uh, this is the capital of the, uh, of the uh, Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And so the area that is of concern is the area up here, which is the Jabbok River that flows in this area here, and the Yarmouk, which is uh, down here uh, to the south. This is the disputed territory that's going to come up in this particular, uh, this particular episode. So the people gather together as the people of Ammon gather and encamp in Gilead. The children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. Now this isn't the Mizpah that we've studied about that's over uh, near uh, Bethel, over in this area of the hill country. This is Mizpah here. This is the Mizpah of, of Gilead. So this is the area uh, where they're both uh, gathering together in this, this particular part of the territory. Uh, in view of a of a battle, but the Israelites don't have a leader, and so they announce in verse eighteen, "Who's the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? Whoever will come forward and be our leader, basically, they say he'll be head over all the inhabitants of, of Gilead." Now there's a change of scene. Now we have to be introduced to the main character, the uh, main actor, who is Jephthah or Yitach in the Hebrew. And Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. That's just a term for the fact that he was a strong warrior. And he's going to be able to um, defeat anyone uh, that he fights. He's the son of a harlot. So that immediately indicates that he is illegitimate. Uh, he is outside of the family line. Uh, we don't know exactly whether she is just a common everyday prostitute or whether she was a temple prostitute. Uh, it's very likely that she was a temple prostitute, which indicates that he's coming out of a 
rather tainted background uh, uh, that's part of the whole fertility uh, cult in, uh, that had found its way into Israel at this time. So he's the son of a harlot, and Gilead is his father. But he's outside the line of inheritance, uh, and Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, uh, they drove uh, Jephthah out. So apparently he grew up with them, but they then dis- disinherited him or kick him out and tell him that he shall have no inheritance in the father's house because you're the son of another woman. So he leaves and he goes to the land of Tov. Now this is another ill-defined territory that is uh, indicated by this uh, blue line just somewhere up to either the northwest or, uh, excuse me, northeast or further east is just this, this territory out beyond the boundaries of civilization where he has basically been operating as a um, as a brigand, as a mercenary, as a roving bandit, and so he's 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 just not the most uh, savory of characters in terms of his background. Question we should ask is, in light of his background, how much does he know about the Torah? How much does he know about the Lord? How much truth does he know, or is his knowledge of God just something that is? Uh, kind of pieced together through various uh, legends or myths or second-hand accounts that's also blended in with various other uh, pieces of, of Canaanite and pagan mythology, not unlike a lot of uh, American Christians. Uh, it's always amazed me in some of the churches, some of the Christians that I've had uh, dealings with over the years because they're not very well taught is the things that they believe are in the Bible and the things that they believe that the Bible actually teaches and they're nowhere to be found in the scripture because we live in an, in a time when Christians are biblically illiterate and theologically Ill- illiterate and unfortunately the pulpits uh, tend to follow in the same way. So uh, that's the kind, same kind of thing that we had then. There's so many parallels with modern American culture. So he's got a, he, he just has what I would call a popular view of God, not a, a well-informed view of God. And it's just a, a, a hodgepodge of different, uh, different ideas and values. And that's going to work itself out in some of the decisions that he, that he makes. So he's out there. In the land of Tob, with as it says, a worthless, a, a group of worthless men banded together with him, and they go out on various uh, raiding expeditions. And yet he has a reputation. This guy has a fearsome reputation. He's sort of a uh, Robin Hood type of individual in the ancient world, although he's not robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. He's just out there uh, robbing from anyone that comes along and then taking what they have. And as the uh, Ammonites are about to make war with Israel, Israel knows that they have to get somebody who is really bad to come and, and lead their forces because they are not tough enough to deal with the, uh, to, to deal with the armies of the Ammonites. And so they, uh, when, the, when the war begins, they send out their elders to find Jephthah and invite him to come and be their commander. And starting in verse 7, he enters into some pretty sophisticated negotiations with them in order to make sure that he's not going to come back, do them a favor, 
and and then get betrayed in the process. And so he in, uh, talks to them and negotiates with them that if he comes back, he will be placed as the head over over this clan, the the clan of Gilead, and that he will be in a position of uh, power and influence and have his inheritance uh, restored. And he says in verse nine, if you take the uh, take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And they promised. They said the Lord will be a witness. First time we've seen the Lord's name invoked, by the way, since they confessed back there. Uh, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Notice they never prayed to God after the confession for guidance in picking this deliver. The, the, the Lord's name is left out of the whole process until they're swearing this oath uh, to, to uh, Jephthah. So Jephthah went with them, starting in verse 11, and he goes to the people uh, in, in Mizpah, and he sends a, a delegation of messengers to the king of the Ammonites and asks him, what, what's his claim? Why is he crossing into this territory that he's going to steal from the Israelites? What's his, uh, what's his basis for taking this land? And in verse 13, we see the response. Now, this is really interesting to follow. First of all, we have to realize that the king of the Ammonites has no knowledge of history, and his whole claim to the land is fraudulent because he's completely ignorant of the past, or either intentionally or unintentionally, we don't know, and he's just making up the facts as he goes along in order to uh, justify his own position. His arguments based on either wishful thinking or propaganda, just in order to expand his his territory to get some well-defined uh, uh, borders. And he says in verse 13, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt. Now this wasn't his land. That's the point that Jephthah will make. It wasn't his land. He's making that up. This land did not belong to to Ammon. But that's, that's his claim. He says, when they came out of Egypt, they took this land from the Arnon as far as the uh, Jabbok, which is this area here. And he says, they took that land, they stole it from, from us, and now, therefore, you need to restore it to us peaceably. So Jephthah again sends messengers back to the king of Ammon and says, uh, Israel did not, he just completely refutes his position. He sets up a very well-reasoned, logical argument and he says, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then they sent out messengers to the king of Edom and basically rehearses what happened, that the Edomites and the Moabites would not let the Israelites come through their land. So they circled around and they came in to this particular territory that was not under uh, the control of the Ammonites at the time. In fact, he never even mentions the Ammonites. This territory was under control of the Amorites to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and they defeated Sihon, and so they took this, by, this land by right of conquest. But in his argument, he number one, he ignores the Ammonites completely. Number two, when he does get around to mentioning a God whose influence was there, he, he ignores um, their God, and he just talks about Chemosh, who's actually the God of the Moabites. So he, he's tweaking them. 
he's 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 making fun of them a little bit. He is he is not being very respectful uh, of them in the way he is uh, uh, handling them. He ignores all their because the Ammonites were present. If you go back to the accounts and numbers, the Ammonites were present. They're mentioned. Uh, they don't have that land, but they are mentioned. But he ignores it as if it's all irrelevant. So he's he's just acting as if they're they're basically inconsequential. And so he uh, then concludes uh, his argument by saying in verse 27, Therefore I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord the judge render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. That concludes the negotiations. They break off and they, they form up their sides and they're going to go to battle. Now we're not told of any specific overt revelation from God to Jephthah. The next thing we know in verse 29, the spirit of Yahweh comes upon Jephthah. Now we have to understand what this means. This is Don't confuse this with anything related to the filling of the spirit in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have various ways of expressing the ministry of the Holy Spirit to certain key people in Israel. For example, Aholiab and Bezalel, who are the craftsmen, they're the uh, heads of the of the guilds of uh, silversmiths, goldsmiths, uh, the workmen who make the furniture of the tabernacle. The Spirit of God comes on them to give them skill in the work that they're going to do. It doesn't have anything to do with whether they're believers or unbelievers or whether they are uh, going to grow to maturity or whether what they're doing is morally right or wrong. Uh, the other other judges also have the Spirit of the Lord come upon them. But the purpose is not for their spiritual life. It's not ethical. It is to give them certain capacities in, in relation to their leadership role of the theocracy. So all the Spirit of God is doing in coming upon Jephthah is he's going to empower him and give him the wisdom and the skill in order to defeat the enemies of Israel. It has nothing to do with uh uh, his own spiritual life or spiritual obedience or anything else. And it doesn't indicate that anything that he's going to do afterward is any uh, better or worse than what it was before. So the Spirit of the Lord comes on him in verse 29, and then he enters into this vow. Now, many people, I've said this before, that I, I believe may have characterized this as a rash vow. I don't think it's a rash vow. I think it is a vow that comes out of his background. Remember, this is a man who has grown up uh, out in, in a pagan environment. He has grown up uh, with very little opportunity to learn anything about God, anything about the Torah, anything about how to properly serve God, and he has been living outside of the law as a brigand out in the land of Tov. And he's just a... You know, today, if, if I were going to take this and make it into a play, and I were going to take some, t- uh, portray this in a modernized, contemporary context, Jephthah would be the head of the Hell's Angels. He would be a biker dude who has absolutely no idea what's right or wrong or what the Bible says, just has a real s- sort of popular understanding of a lot of different mixed elements as to what's right. But when you're going to get in a fight, if you're going to put this guy in, if you want to win, you're going to make this guy the head of your side because you know that he can win. He's just a bad dude. 
and that's the way Jephthah was. But he has a certain religious streak, and he decides that he's going to, uh, wants to really guarantee, it's very superstitious, this kind of thing is, is uh, supported in, in um, some of the ancient documents that we have related to the worship of Milcom and Chemosh, the gods of uh, the Moabites and, and, um, and the Ammonites and, and the Philistines, where people would make bargains with God and they would sacrifice their children to seal the deal and to show how serious it was. And, and Jephthah knows that when he makes this vow, that, that that pretty much is going to end his lineage. But he wants to win. He wants to, he wants to win and he wants to be, have the power of being the, the chief of the Gileadites. And so he, he makes this, this vow to God. And nowhere in the scripture does it say this was a good thing. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, verse 30, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon that shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, in the English, it translates it as if it could be anything. That's not true in, the, in, in Greek, I mean in the Hebrew. They, they didn't have pets, okay? He's not expecting, um, you know, Fido to come running out of the door to jump up in his arms and, and smother him in, in licks, uh, he's not expecting the cat to come running out. He's not even expecting the Vietnamese pig to come running out. He, they, they, they don't have pets in that sense. The only thing that could fit the explanation here of something coming out to greet him would be a human being. Non-human beings don't perform that action. So he knows that he is, he, he's talking about a human being here and expecting a human being to want, be the one to come out of his house uh, to greet him. And so then the story goes on that he uh, leads the uh, Israelites against the Ammonites, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And just because God gave him the victory doesn't mean it's because of the vow. God was going to give him the victory anyway. That's why God uh, empowered him by the Holy Spirit in verse 29. So he defeated them uh, from Aroer, as far as uh, Manith, 20 cities, and to, uh, to Abel Karamim. Now, if we look at the map here, we see that the fight against the, the Ammonites follows this trajectory. You see the yellow lines here. That is his attack against, there's, there's three prongs to that attack, and then further attacks down here. And here's uh, Abel, Karamim here, and Arar. So he fights all the way down to here. And then the, um, the red lines represent, that's further oppression. So the, the, the yellow lines here is where he defeats them and wipes them out. Now, when he comes home, it's what we read in verse 34, Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah. Now, let's stop here for a minute. The illustration is picked up by the writer of Hebrews because... At some point, at some elementary, rudimentary spiritual level, Jephthah is trusting God to give him the victory. That's why he is mentioned in by the writer of Hebrews. Even though before and after and mixed up with all of this is a lot of confusion and a lot of pagan ideas that are in his soul, nevertheless, there are 
elements there, there's at least a core of recognition that Yahweh is the God of Israel. This is the land that God gave to Israel, and that therefore he has a right to defend it, and he is uh, depending upon God to give him the victory, and God gives him the victory. So that's, that's there. But there's a lot of other garbage that's there as well. Now, when he gets home, uh, his daughter comes running out to meet him, and she has, she's throwing a party for him. She's got uh, uh, tambourines, and she's dancing, and we're told that she was his only child. And beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes. And he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. Well, what was his word? To offer her as an ola, a burnt offering. And that word everywhere else in the Old Testament means a burnt offering. And this would be the same word that was used of child sacrifices and human sacrifices in the, in the pagan religions. So she says to him, well, Father, if you've given your word to the Lord, you have to do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now, you can't say this any other way. If you said, I will be an Ola, then you have to do according to what you said. Now, you'll find that a lot of evangelicals, you may have a study Bible that says that he dedicated her to perpetual virginity in some, some sort of early form of a of a, uh, uh, of a, some sort of uh, nunnery or something like that. Uh, there, there's nothing like that going on in Israel in the ancient world. They, they don't have this, you know, the daughters of perpetual chastity or anything like that going on in the ancient world. All you have is, is, is the uh, rank paganism, and any of the women who are dedicated to any of the goddesses in the ancient world become temple prostitutes. So th- there's just not a place for that kind of... Uh, interpretation. So in verse 37, she says, well, let this be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity. Now, what that's all about is she's never going to realize her role in life to have children and to bring in, possibly be in the line of the Messiah and to bring in uh, the Messiah and to have the next generation of children. And so we read in verse 39, it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. And in the Hebrew, it's very clear, he did to her what he vowed. And you can't get around it. You can't soften it. You can't uh, make it easier. You can't figure out some way to compromise. Remember, this, this leader is sandwiched in between Gideon, who leads the nation back into idolatry, and Samson, who's a womanizer, who never does anything right except for about 10 seconds at the end of his life. So we're, not, we're, we're talking about a series of leaders in the book of Judges, that each one of which is worse, is more spiritually corrupt, and acts more like a pagan than the one before. And so he's, it just shows the impact of the assimilation to the culture of the leadership, uh, the leadership of Israel. But what the writer of Hebrews brings out is that it's not all negative. It's not all negative because he does trust God at one small area of his life, and because of that, there's victory over the enemies of Israel, and so he is honored because of that, which which ought to encourage all of us that no matter how much we fail, no matter how pagan our culture is, no matter how 
pagan or relativistic we've become, there is still hope for all of us to trust in God, claim promises, and to be used by God and not end up completely uh, forgotten and to be complete uh, losers at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we didn't get to cover both Jephthah and Samson. They're just too too big. So next time I'll come back and we'll do a survey of, of Samson before we move on in our study of Hebrews. So with our, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study uh, Jephthah, to study the impact of paganism on its thinking, to study and to, to see some parallels with our own age and how paganism affects uh, our culture and how it affects us in many different ways and how the um, poison of moral relativism uh, seeps into every area of our thinking and how an ignorance of your word uh, produces bad behavior in the name of Christianity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied, that we may realize the importance of knowing your word and the importance of being faithful in obedience. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.